guys. I'm fantasy author J.H. Fleming. Hi, my name's Phil, and I scribble things good. And with us today, as always, is a real-life Ninja Turtle. It's Christopher. Hi, Christopher. Hi, Phil. <laughs> and our guest today is our very good friend and author J.C. Crumpton. J.C. is an award-winning author who lives about 25 minutes from us. He grew up a military brat and has lived all over the place, including Iceland. His first novel, Silence in the Garden, featured the town I was born in, Eureka Springs, Arkansas. He is a proud member of Authors Anonymous 2.0, Ozark Creative Writers, and the Bummer Shoots Writer Society. And he fries up a mean lamb steak. Hello, JC. How are you, butter, buddy? Doing well. How are you? Butter. Butter. Did I call you butter? <laughs> butter. Buddy. <laughs> butter. Butter, buddy. <laughs> We're back to South Butters? Park. <laughs> <laughs> I talk good, too. <laughs> Oh, hey, hey, JC, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Very good. I have to tell a story. I try to tell a story about the guests whenever we have them on because it amuses me. Okay. And so how I met JC was years ago when I first started doing conventions. It seemed like he was at every convention. Now, the way he tells this story, he always says that I thought he was a weirdo sitting in the corner. I never thought he was a weirdo. I just thought he was super serious because he always sat, he like went to every writing panel and he just sat with his notebook and just took notes like crazy, but he never like said hi to anyone or went out of his way to talk to us <laughs> or anything like that. And then at some point we just started talking. I realized he was a giant goofball like me and we became friends, but this probably culminated into the funniest experience at the, World Science Fiction Convention in Kansas City. And JH is already laughing. <laughs> so we're at the World Science Fiction Convention, and it's late in the evening, and JH and JC and I are roaming around, having a good time, laughing at our own stupid jokes, and I guess looking for trouble or something. I don't know. But we're cruising around in the World Science Fiction Convention. It took over like multiple hotels, right? So we're kind of wandering from hotel to hotel just seeing what's going on, right? And we come across this room with wide open doors and there's like <laughs> 30 people sitting in a circle playing music. And we just kind of stop and we just kind of stare at them for a moment. Like, what is, what is this we've found? And there's this lady who's kind of running the event and she's very serious. And like the musicians all kind of stop and they just kind of stare at us and we kind of stared at them. And the lady is like, if you would like to join us, you are welcome. If you wish to participate in the music, you may join the circle. However, if you are not going to join the music, we ask that you join the audience and remain silent and not disturb those who are participating in the music. And we're like, oh, okay. And so we like go in, but there's like 30 people in this circle. and There's probably another 20 or 30 packed in this room. So really like the only spot for us to stand was by the water cooler in the corner. It's a hotel, right? So they had a water cooler with like cups. And so we go over, the three of us huddle around this water cooler, and the weirdest thing happens. This lovely young lady who was sitting on the other side of the room is like eyeballing us, and she gets up and she walks over, I don't know, maybe five feet in front of us. And just to set the stage, she wasn't like dressed provocatively or anything. She was, I don't remember really, other than I remember she was wearing like a cotton skirt. That's what I remember. And this lovely young lady, she <laughs> walks over and gets like a few feet in front of us, like five feet in front of us. And she turns, looks at us for a moment, 
and then turns around and proceeds to get down on her hands and knees in front of us. I'm like, that's weird. Maybe she just wanted a different place to sit. But she's on her hands and knees, and she proceeds to kind of shove her butt up in the air. And then she turns and looks over her shoulder. <laughs> she turns and looks over her shoulder and starts staring at us while she's got her butt up in the air. And what I can only describe as a my body is ready kind of pose. <laughs> and I'm, I'm watching this and I'm like, is she looking at me? Is she looking at JC? Is she looking at JH? Like, I can't tell which one of us she's given the the pose to right now. <laughs> and so I'm like, I look at JC and, and JH and I'm like, are they, are they seeing what I'm seeing right now? Is this really happening? <laughs> I lean over to tell JC. And at this point, this music circle is, they're back in flow, right? I lean over to JC to be like, are you seeing this right now? And JC leans in to meet me. And one of us, I'm not sure which of us it was, put too much weight on the water table. <laughs> <laughs> and the water cooler thing like the plastic thing like slams against the wall and cups go flying and water's like sloshing around and the whole table's trying to fall and I'm immediately like the whole music stops again and now the angry lady's staring at us with the music circle not to mention you know my body is ready lady so I'm like nope and I just bolt out the door hackling to myself JH follows me and I look over my shoulder and JC's back there trying to catch the water thing before it jumps over and all the cups and uh it was pretty good. It was pretty good. We were not we were not welcome back to the filk circle. Nope. <laughs> no, no, we weren't at all. Who loves kitty? <laughs> it was so weird. <laughs> I'd almost forgot about that. Man, that was I wish I had forgotten about that. <laughs> that was so weird. <laughs> it was uh, it's kind of nightmarish. <laughs> I don't know why she did that. <laughs> it was, it's like that doesn't happen. You know? True life is stranger than fiction. I mean, it's like you, you can't write. That was just weird. <laughs> Oh, it was good. It was so fun. We had such a good time at the convention. And we had much fun at the Filk people's expense, unfortunately. Shout out to the Filk people at Worldcon Kansas City. We love you. We tried to be good audience, but we're just immature idiots. Sorry. <laughs> I think if not for the weird lady, we would have been fine. <laughs> like, we would have been fine. Yeah, and honestly... <laughs> I don't remember which one of us was responsible for knocking over the water cooler. It could have been me, but I definitely was the first one out of the room. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just standing there going like, where is everybody? <laughs> <laughs> then we went and got on the elevator and you played your favorite elevator game where you, mm -hmm. so JC's really big. He's not quite 18 feet tall like Gary, but he's like a good 14 feet tall. Uh -huh. If he's on an elevator, he always puts his nose up to the door. And then, like, tries to use his bolt to kind of, like, make it look like people can't come in or to freak him out a little bit. It's pretty fun. Oh, I did that there, too? I, I still yep. do that. <laughs> I don't doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Before we get started in earnest, there is a couple shout-outs we need to make this week. Starting with our good friend David J. Peterson, who was on earlier. 
several weeks back. He wrote a really nice shout out for us on his blog at djprights.com. Christopher, he even included a hashtag Chris Sounds Hot. So that's pretty cool. Of all the things he could write, that was, that was one, one of the, the things he, he could write. It. And he did choose it. I'm so excited. <laughs> you should be honored. Yes. <laughs> and I also saw that Gary, who was on with us a couple weeks ago and is 18 feet tall, he has been nominated for a McCavity Award for One Shot Harry. This is an award that is voted on by the members of the Mystery Readers International. And One Shot Harry was nominated for the Sue Fetter Memorial Award for Best Historical Mystery. So good luck to Gary on that. Hopefully he wins. And then another quick shout out is Brian Thomas Schmidt, who was on with us several weeks back. When he was on with us, he was plugging his book, Robots Through the Ages. But that's an anthology he edited alongside Robert Silverberg. And it's out now. And it's got stories from both of them, as well as Shannon McGuire, Roger Zelazny, Fritz Lieber, Connie Willis, and many others. So that's available now. So go check it out. All right, JC, let's talk about you. Oh, if we have to. <laughs> I mean, we don't have to. It'd be kind of weird since we brought you here as the guest. Right. And so that would be kind of awkward. Within a few days of when this airs, I believe you will have a new poetry collection out, right? Yes, sir. Called Newspaper Reading. What's that about? It is, well, I like to call it accessible poetry. And that means you don't have to have a PhD in comparative French literature of the Renaissance to understand it. That's fair. So it's accessible to people like me who are anybody. Yeah. underqualified, undereducated, but it's never stopped me. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. It's divided into four different sections, and each of those sections has a different theme. As most of my poetry is, it tends to be a little dark, because when I write poetry, it's basically to exercise the darkness and, you know, bad feelings or depressions or anything like that that I have going on. So it's cheaper than a uh, therapist. Oh, wow. See, I thought you were going to say it's because you use a black pen. No, no. I use this pen that some dude gave me. <laughs> we will talk about that pen. <laughs> like eight years ago. <laughs> uh, no, that's really cool. So do you do that as well with your prose fiction as well, or is that just something you do with poetry? That's just poetry. Okay. No, my prose can be dark as well, or it can be lighthearted. It varies with my prose, but... But it's not that same aim to, you know, kind of get out your frustrations and dark no. thoughts and things. That's specifically for poetry. Yeah, and Crow Johnson, a folk musician down here, reviewed the book. And I gave her a copy so she could write a review on it. And she said that it ends in places where you don't think it's going to go. She thinks it ends lighter than it begins. Interesting. So I guess I'm, exer I'm exercising that darkness correctly getting it out onto the paper so that it can see the light of day very cool very cool also tell me about blood in the light which was previously titled field of strong men correct yes it's a western vengeance novella about three brothers who are trying to avenge the death of their father who was involved in a uh, land deal gone wrong it takes place in baxter springs um, kansas which is just west of you right up the rod there Yep. <laughs> I actually went and I looked at the history of the area and I used the historical settings to write an accurate historical fiction that was about vengeance and how it doesn't always turn out how you want it to. Very cool. 
And that is being re-released. When? When is that one coming back out? Oh, it's, it's already out. Oh, it's already back out? Yes. Yep. And it's available wherever you buy books. You can order it. But it's it's an ebook only. Okay, cool. And it, it's the one that you reviewed. Yes, that is true. I yeah. did review it. And I read it, too. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> that always works. Or you hope it works. <laughs> I generally try to only review things I actually have read as a rule. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then good rule to follow. Silence in the Garden is up for a re-release as well in August. Yes. I want to get it in the collection of Cardboard Heroes. I want to get those both released before I head down to Searcy for the uh, White County Creative Writers Conference in, uh, in September. Okay. So give the audience a little bit about Silence in the Garden. Silence in the Garden is about a young woman who was attending the Crescent College Conservatory for Young Women, which was the Crescent Hotel back in the 20s. And she is involved in a romance that doesn't turn out good for her. And there is um, bitter rivalries. I use a lot of the area's history. And I guess I just like to put as much accurate history into my stories as possible so that you can see the actual things taking place. What is your research time like for that? For Silence in the Garden, it was probably about a year. Really? Yeah, I went up to the actual hotel and talked to the staff, talked to lots of different people. But the story actually started to get its beginnings back when I was in college and even high school. But when I was in college, a group of friends of mine, we all wanted to be writers or musicians or artists. And so we'd go to Eureka Springs almost every weekend, kind of soak in the vibes. And one of my friends, his mom was actually the general manager of the Crescent Hotel. And so we spent all our time looking for the ghosts. Sure, sure. That's what everyone does. And never found a single one. But I talked to people who said they had experiences. And so that was my research. My wife's brother and his wife stayed there. And they said they had some strange experiences as well. So basically, the story is going to be about the events that could have created the ghosts. Okay. And what is the Cardboard Heroes? It's a collection of uh, previously published and unpublished poems and short stories. Okay. Cool. It has uh, two short stories in it. I've been working on a fantasy world for 30 years, just creating the world as it goes. And it's the last story in the collection. And it's called All the Water Held in One Hand. And it takes place in that same fantasy world. And a science fiction world that I've created, there's a story called Grey Market that takes place in that one. And both of those are in the collection. Okay, cool. And that is, so both of those are re-releasing uh, in August, correct? Yes, sir. Cool. And what was the conference you mentioned you're going to? It's a, a White County Writers Conference down in Searcy. There's a, the White County Creative Writers Group holds an annual conference. This year they have, it's Clarissa Mills is speaking at it. And she's associated with the uh, OCW in Eureka Springs that takes place in October. Okay, cool. Cool. I've never been to that. I We, we need to do the one in Eureka Springs at some point. Been there the last two times. I have a collection coming out in January with Marlon Hayes. He is a writer from Chicago, and he and I have been to the last two OCW conferences, Ozark Creative Writers Conferences, and we compete a lot in the same contests. And two years ago, he won two to one of my contests, and then last year I won two to one. So it was like we decided to put a 
collection together of the stories that we competed with each other. Mm-hmm. And the cover, you're going to love the cover. You remember the old boxing robots? Yeah, yeah. Like the red and blue one? Yeah, that's good. Yep, yep. That's going to be the cover. <laughs> that's cool. That's great. Speaking of which, tell us uh, tell us about the Bummer Shoots Writers Society. Uh, Bummer Shoots Writers Society is a group of us, including Marlon. There's uh, there's seven of us all together. We are writers, cover artists, marketers. Several of us have worked with publishers. Not me, but some of the, the members have worked with, with publishers. Some of us have experience with our own labels. In fact, newspaper reading will be coming out under my own label, Carter Vay Productions, as did Blood and the Light. And I have another collection that's out there in the midst of chaos that I also released. So what we wanted to do is we wanted to get together and be able to have a place where people, other creatives, could come to find out what to do. How how are we going to get our stuff out there? But it's actually really cool because it's a learning process for us as well. Because sure. I wanted to do it. And, and actually, I've started a blog series called The Journey. And it's about what do I have to do to create my writing platform? What do I have to do to start marketing my products? What do I have to do to get on people's lips, to get on their tongues? Because, you know, still, even in this day, word of mouth is the best advertising you can get. Sure. And so how do we become relevant in other people's world? And so that's what we're looking for. We're looking to bring great authors and the readers together. You know, when we focus on providing resources you know, for the independent authors, but also all authors are included. Sure. A uh, point of clarity for me, though. You mentioned some of them have worked with publishers. And I know that you have bad short-term memory, but you also have worked with publishers. So what did you mean differently with them? I'm sorry? <laughs> uh, just for the audience, JC has no short-term memory because he got ran over by a truck. But that's a story for another time. <laughs> so. One day we ran into JC at Barnes and Noble and he's like, Hey, do you like my car? We're like, yeah. And he goes, I won that. Like, what do you mean you won it? And he goes, I hit a hole in one at this charity event that gave me a car. (laughs) (laughs) My son loves telling the story to people because he always says, yeah, my dad hit a hole in one in a golf tournament and won a car and he sucks. (laughs) 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 And I did because, okay, when I went up to the hole, it was just the third hole of the day. And so I looked and there was a sign that says, win a $30,000 car with a hole in one. I'm like, going, okay, well, it's 165 yards to the flag, so I'll use a driver. So I get out there, the pin straight away, it's behind a little knoll. I can't see the hole, but I can see the pin. And so I, okay, all right, I'm just going to hit it. And I whacked the crap out of it. <laughs> and it goes about at a 45 degree angle in the wrong way. <laughs> Hits a tree. <laughs> Bounces up through the branches and goes over the knoll. So we're thinking, okay, well, it's at least it's on the green. So we all go up there. We're looking. We can't find the ball. We're like, going, okay, as hard as I hit it, it probably went off the back. So we're all looking. And then one guy goes up and he looks in the hole and he goes, what were you hitting? And I said, Bridgestone number one. And he goes, it's in the hole. <laughs> and we had a pastor with us. And I looked at him and I said, sorry, I'm going to cuss. And I said, are you shitting me? <laughs> Pastor goes, I don't know that you could have said anything else. <laughs> yeah. So, so JC, you want a car? So True was, story. <laughs> yeah. And four months ago, I wrecked that car. I wasn't going to tell that part, but he also oh, ended yeah. the car with a hole in one. <laughs> <laughs> it was total. That, um, got hit in the back, spun me, rolled me, spun me again. Yeah, it was... Uh, 
But that's not when he lost his short-term yeah. memory. That was a different accident. <laughs> yeah, I was, that's quite a while ago. Oh, that's just was like 33 years ago now. <laughs> so, JC. Yes, sir. How do you feel about elitist art? Elitist Stark? Oh, elitist art. This was one of your topics. Oh, elitist art. <laughs> <laughs> I said elitist Stark. I'm like, that's okay. I thought he was mispronouncing Arya yeah, Stark. Yeah, I was like, I, was like going, I don't remember that character. I don't remember that character. I'm like, now I'm going to look like an idiot. I just want hey, Thanks a lot, Phil. I just want to go on record that I know I don't talk so well. However, it was JC's topic. And I put it in the show notes for everyone to see. And I've been going right down it like a script. I did know what you said, but that's because I had looked at it in the show notes. I'm like, Aaliyah Stark, who the hell is that? Uh, Sorry. Elitist art. You wanted to talk about okay. it. You said that you prefer yeah. your art to be super elite and not accessible for everyone. And no, no, no. The opposite. Oh, it's the opposite? It's the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> I think art is something that should be enjoyed by everybody. It's not something that needs to be... Well, a lot of art can get kind of snooty. Sure. And, you know, people are like, oh, well, you don't... You can just can't appreciate it, you know? And it's just like, no, art's something that should be enjoyed by everybody. And I actually, you know, my degrees, uh, English with a creative writing emphasis, I got from the University of Arkansas. I actually got in an argument with a practical crit professor. And he was like, well, according to this school of thought, what are they trying to represent when they use this method? And I was like, well, it doesn't matter. And he's like, what? I said, well, it's, it's going to mean something different for every person who reads it, every person who sees it, every person who hears it. It's going to be based on their experiences. And it's also going to mean something different if you like revisit that piece of art, whether it's a book or a painting or a piece of music. It's going to be something different each time you view it. You know, my favorite series of books is, you know, Lord of the Rings. And it doesn't mean the same thing to me now that it meant when I was, you know, 13 years old when I read it for the first time. I read it, you know, probably once every two or three years. And it's just like, Based on my own personal experiences, it's something different each time I take away from it. And so that's what I mean by accessible. I think I, I think all art should be accessible to everybody, and there shouldn't be anybody who, who sticks their nose up at any art. It may not say anything to you, but it's going to say something to somebody. Does that explain? Can I stick my nose up at modern art? I have that one at least. You know, where you walk into but an it, it art may, it gallery may not mean something to you. and it literally is just somebody just splash some blue paint on a white canvas and they're like, it's art. No, it's not. Or or you just, at Crystal Bridges where somebody just dumped a pile of candy. Yes. It, yeah, that's a pile <laughs> yeah. of candy. That is a pretty pile of candy and it was better than most of the modern art and I did eat some of it. <laughs> yep. So actually, that one I was pretty, I wasn't hating on that one. Yes, I've ate some of it too. <laughs> Were we supposed to do that? <laughs> I don't know, but they put candy on the floor. I'm going to eat it. Yeah. <laughs> but I do have to laugh, though, because I go through like a museum, you know, and you're just like you walk through and there's like all this old, beautiful art and these beautiful paintings. Yep. And you're like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And then you get to the modern art section. It's like, you know, painter Daffodil threw some yellow paint on a white canvas. And they're like, how does it make you feel? I'm like a little annoyed because the rest of that stuff was so good. What is this? Right? I don't know. Or the Pillar of Fans. Pillar of Fans? I don't guess I've seen that one. It was box fans that were just stacked 
over each other, up, uh, stapled to the wall, My above each other. I didn't get to see that one. It was a long time ago. I will say this. I've always thought it was funny. So I write primarily genre fiction, right? So I pretty much live in the world of science fiction, fantasy. That's pretty much my realm. I don't really leave it too much. Right. But I've always thought it's funny is like for what they call literary fiction, right? So you have like a lot of people who get kind of snooty about literary fiction Mm -hmm. and like, I would never read that genre garbage, you know? But what's funny to me is that most of the literary fiction is kind of just, I'm going to get so much trouble for saying this. Okay, but I'm going to be real. A lot of times literary fiction is just genre fiction that hasn't been written very good. And genre fiction has a ton of rules. Like, as authors, you can't go to a genre fiction publisher and be like, I wrote all of this in third person, present, and past. So they'll be like, what? No, that doesn't make sense. Or like, no, you can't do this. You know, like, there's actually kind of rigid rules that they expect us to live by in order to, like, be published and things. But all of that goes out the window for literary fiction, which I always thought was funny is, like, the one that actually has sort of a structure and some rules around it that you have to follow to sort of be accepted within it is treated like it's somehow less than. I've always thought that was amusing. This also what I'm talking about. I don't like elitist art because I think that art should be available to as many people as possible. And when you have the uh, the snooty, whether it's literary fiction or modern art or whatever, that not as many people can appreciate it. But when you have like genre fiction or, you know, mystery thriller, I mean, what reaches the greatest number of people? Look at the New York Times bestseller list. You know, it's like, it's almost exclusively genre fiction. Yeah. And romance, right? Like, right. romance is always king. I guess is romance, romance might be considered genre fiction, I guess. It is. It is a genre, yeah. It reaches the greatest number of people, and that's what I think art should do. Yeah. I'm okay with not being one of the smarmy cool kids. I'm fine living down here in the gutter where I belong with my (laughs) unqualified, uneducated self. Well, my educated self always got in trouble and arguing with my professors. That's fair. That's fine. You wouldn't expect that from me, would you? No, I don't. You never argue with anyone. You never take any controversial stances. I I would never (laughs) argue with a fence post. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So let's talk about craft a little bit. Okay. Pantser or plotter? Both. Yeah. I was half expecting you to say plotter because of the historical fiction. I don't know how you could really do that without plotting based on having to do all the research and everything else, right? Longer works. I'm more of a plotter. Mm-hmm. Shorter works, I'm more of a pantser. But I always begin with the end in mind. Okay. I always know where the story is going to end. And I don't actually like the terms pantser or plotter. Okay. Because when you say, oh, well, that person's a plotter. So it's it's almost like, well, it takes out the creativity of it. Well, no, it doesn't because you still have to write the freaking outline. Yeah. And And that's the act of creativity. That's one of those things people really, some people get very hard-nosed about arguing about. And I've actually had somebody on a panel once. I didn't get into an argument. There was an argument happening with me sitting in the middle of the two people, (laughs) one arguing that plotting was the way to go, the other arguing that if you plotted at all, you took all the soul out of your story. And so they were like bickering. And then they asked me, it became my turn. It's like, what are you? And I'm like, well, I guess I'm a hybrid because I do both. And one of the person arguing for pantsing turned and looked at me and said, I have read your work and you do not plot. 
And I was like, (laughs) (laughs) I have an outline. And they're like, no, you don't. And I was like, well, I'm pretty sure I do. (laughs) Because I remember making it and using it. And they were like, but you can't put more than like a subject line in there. There's no possible way your, your stuff's too good to have been plotted at all. And I was like, uh, that's a compliment, but <laughs> that's a compliment, but I do outline some of it, but I feel you. I think the longer works are extensively outlined, but what I look at my outline is, is this is the framework. This is the skeleton. This is what it's going to sure. look like underneath. And so the act of creativity and spontaneity comes when I'm trying to flesh that out when I'm adding the organs, when I'm adding the circulatory mm-hmm. system, when I'm putting the flesh on it, the final touches. And people talk about it. It's like, oh, well, I didn't know where this character was going to go. Well, that still happens to me, even though I plot a lot. Mm-hmm. Even though I outline, I still have characters that surprise me with the things they do. And it's like, all it means is I just have to adjust the framework a little. Yeah, I think that's what I always try to tell people, like newer writers and things who kind of ask about it. And I think what's important, I imagine a lot of pantsers who are very negative towards outlining is because they have outlined the life out of their story and box yeah. themselves in a corner where it's not fun. So I think each person has to figure out how to keep the creativity in it. Right. Yeah. So I wrote that 270,000 word novel. There's no way I could have done that and kept all the pieces together without a pretty rigorous outline. But I know with me, I just give myself a few sentences of what I need to happen in the scene to move it to the next scene. Right. And then I just go wing it from there, right? And then if things start happening that I don't expect, then I let them happen, and that's how I can keep creativity alive. Yeah. Well, it's still fun. Yeah. You're creating something new that, you know, you've never even experienced before. Sure. So, I mean, right now I'm working on a short story that I hope to finish tonight or tomorrow about two wizards that are rivals, but they're also best friends, and they get drunk, and they decide to go save this village from a dragon. And they end up arguing so much. And the dragon is like just an old ancient dragon that just wants to be euthanized. (laughs) And he gets so upset about them arguing all the time, he just eats them both. (laughs) I like like this. (laughs) That's all the outline I have for that. That's it. And so I'm writing it as I go. And so it's just being spontaneous. Sure. You know, I always said I was right with the ending in mind. And so that's how it's going to end. This poor dragon who just wants to die. The two mages are so bent on arguing with each other that they can't get the job done. And so he just eats them in hopes that, you know, some knight comes along and saves them by killing them. (laughs) All right, cool. So one last one for you, JC. Advice for new authors. What's your advice for new authors? Don't let people tell you you can't. Oh, I like that. Good one. All right, that's good. On that note, let's go do the news. All right. And with our first news thing for today, HarperCollins has announced that they're shutting down their YA imprint, Inkyard Press. According to an article on locusmag.com, this is happening as of August 1st, and the staff is being laid off. So that is a bummer to hear. Yeah, I saw people talking about this on Twitter. They're not happy. And they shouldn't be. It's It sucks. Yeah, that sucks. And obviously, this isn't the first of these we've covered. So it's always a bummer. Mm-hmm. It just it happens a lot in our industry. I guess it is what it is, right? Did they give a reason? Money, JC. 
Money. <laughs> always money. Always always the profit margin. <laughs> Why don't they just print on more of the page? <laughs> oh, I guess it'd be less of the page if you want a larger yeah, one. I think that uh, imprint was struggling a little bit, so that was the decision they had to make, I guess. All right. Next bit of news. So draft to digital recently acquired self-pub book covers. So I haven't actually used this. I don't think any of us have used it before, mm-hmm. but um, it's interesting because draft to digital um, not too long ago acquired Smashwords as well. So um, they yep. made a statement about their goal is really to just continue improving the lives of authors. So this is supposed to be another step in doing that. So Again, I've never checked it out, but I would at least look at it because it sounds interesting. I looked at it the other day. Oh, really? When I first heard this news come up, and they've got some good-looking stuff, a lot of genre-based covers. Either select a pre-made cover, or you can actually have one customized, or you can have a pre-made one adjusted for you. All depends on what you're looking for. I'm pulling it up right now because I'm curious. I don't think I've ever actually looked at it. Mm-mm. Yeah, I have it up on one of my windows. Okay. Yeah, some of those aren't bad. I've always hired somebody like an in- independently to design mm-hmm. my covers for me. And I've seen like there are websites that do this. I don't know that there's probably not any that are as big as this one, or at least that I know of. Maybe there is. But yeah, some of these are very usable, very decent. I don't see anything that I love as much as the covers I've had made for myself, at least in the pre-made section. But I might be a little biased because I really, really like what my artist did for me on the Blade Mage. So, mm-hmm. but that's pretty cool. What happens if you click custom? What does that look like? Uh, this is the way we do custom covers. Please send us a simple creative brief of what you would like to see on your cover. If you get into too many specific details, it will make it less likely that the artist would accept the project. The artist would do one design, but okay. So it almost sounds like a Fiverr deal, you know? Yeah. Right. I do like that it has an option to search by artist name. So if you have an artist in mind who is on the site, you can specifically look them up. That's cool. Right. I don't see the prices. But anyways, that's cool. They've been going since 2013. So I noticed also that draft digital said they're planning to basically kind of leave it alone for the next year and let it kind of run without making any major changes. So that's good, I guess. People who use it, I don't, it doesn't sound like much will change straight away. So that's cool. Right. Yeah. All right. I believe Chris has our next story for us. I do. The iconic hacker magazine, 2600, was being published through Kindle's newsstand service. So when Kindle announced that they were shutting down the newsstand service, the hacker community that handles 2600 said, we're going to go ahead and publish our own stuff. So they've got PDFs available on their website for people who like the physical copy that they've been putting out. And then they have an EPUB for those that are more likely to use the electronic reading mediums. Yeah, I thought that that was sort of fun. So if you remember, that was the same thing we covered for Clark's World recently, that they were impacted by Amazon shutting down. I think the same, I'm assuming the same service. I just thought it was fun that the, the hacker community was like, oh, well. How about that? Well, we're just going to find a way around this problem. (laughs) Mm. And they did it all DRM free. I thought you were going to say something like, you know, the hackers got upset and decided to uh, really screw Amazon up. Oh, (laughs) 
Yeah, that gets you put in jail. <laughs> too far, too much. Our next thing actually came from the Amazon KDP forums. I saw this today and I thought it was sort of a interesting little note because it's something I've thought about myself. So basically somebody had posted the question, my books have explicit spicy scenes, but I would not categorize them as erotica. They are fantasy romance. Do I need to click the adult only button? Does anyone know what happens if you don't select this? Can Amazon ban you from publishing if they think you should have clicked yes? So there was some interesting responses to this. And one of the people said, if it's a fantasy and or romance genre book with sex scenes, then no, you don't have to. Now, again, these, this is not from Amazon. These are individuals commenting. So take it with a grain of salt. But basically, they sort of said no. Several people said no, they don't think you have to. But what's interesting is the person who posted said, thank you. I spoke to a KDP rep and she said I could probably click no as well. And somebody commented at the bottom and said, simple answer, if it's not porn, don't indicate it is. <laughs> so I, I thought that was interesting, um, especially for those of us who sometimes include things that, you know, might be a little bit explicit or whatever. You're going to publish your book on Amazon and you're like, hmm, do I click this button? Yes or no. So I thought that was an interesting read. I think I'm OK. All right. And over to our AI correspondent. In our continuing coverage of our robot overlords, Sufwa has joined the open letter, so they are definitely pushing up the number of signatures that are being put out to the AI leaders. I like, I like how you prominently said AI leaders this week, whereas last week you went the AI. <laughs> yes. Mm, broken, me no worky, can't think. <laughs> If we don't learn from our mistakes and get our bugs fixed, we are bound to, you know, Christopher 2.0. <laughs> yeah, if I was only on revision 2.0, that'd be something. Anyway. But the indication from our very own Phil is that earlier he saw that an estimation of it being over 10,000 authors having signed this. That's what I saw. So if it's not, then, you know, we know who to blame. I mean, don't blame me. Don't blame me because they haven't signed it. I did see that, though. Yeah. And I didn't save the article because it's not like, you know, I do a podcast that includes the writing industry news every week. <laughs> Anything else on the AI front, Christopher? Uh, let's see. Yeah, but I don't want to talk about it. Fair <laughs> enough. Then that's our news. <laughs> OK, for tools this time, I did want to talk about something I've been using for the last several weeks that really help me maybe help others if you're the type to do like sprints when you're writing. So I found these videos on YouTube. So I'll just preface this with usually I listen to music when I'm writing. And then I have also got an app I use by the thing I mentioned before called Writometer that will um, keep track of like the words that I've written both like in that session and then Lenovo as a whole. And it has a built-in timer. So normally I'll do what's called a sprint where the timer's going. I'm writing as much as I can before the timer runs out. And then I usually just pick whatever music I'm listening to. But some weeks ago, I found these videos on YouTube called immersive writing videos. And the person who makes them is another author named Abby Emmons. And she's got several of them now. And I've tried out almost all of them. And they've been really awesome. So what she's done is make like a two hour video where she's got those sprints built in with breaks between each one. So 
I can have my timer going and start her video and it'll like be pretty much perfectly aligned, like maybe a few seconds off, but like the music's already built into the video. She's got some that are focused on specific genres and then some that are more like generics. Like one, it's just like you can see her at her computer writing and it's got music going. Or there's one that's specific to like a a fantasy world. So it's like it starts off like, oh, you are walking through a village and this is the music while you're in the village. Now you're in a forest and this is the music while you're in the forest. Now you're in a dragon cave. And she's done that for multiple genres. Like I saw a science fiction one. There was one um, supposed to be like you're writing in a cozy beach house. um, One where you're in like a haunted castle. Um, Just all different ones that are they're really cool another i like was where you're on a train that one was neat but um yeah i've been using that while i've been writing and just have a few of like my favorites and i'll just have those on repeat while i'm going and it's been really helpful as far as like getting more focused um, for some reason the the one where she's well i can see her writing as well like that one has been kind of my go-to and Normally, I would have thought like, oh, the fantasy one would be my favorite. But like, for some reason, that one has really been like a motivational one for me. Maybe it's like the thought like, okay, this is someone else who's writing at the same time as me, even though it's pre-recorded and I know that. But like seeing it, it's kind of like a mental trick. Like, Mm -hmm. okay, someone else is also writing. We're writing together and doing the sprint. And that's really fun. So, yeah. Um, so again, her name is Abby Emmons. She's on YouTube and she's got a lot of other writing videos as well. Um, somewhere she's actually talking about, you know, craft and whatnot, but the immersive writing videos were, were really fun and I think everyone should check them out. Doesn't she also have some with her sister? Uh, she does. I have not seen them. Yeah. I've seen a couple of hers and her and her sister together. Nice. If it's the one I'm thinking of. So. Yeah, I've mostly just focused on the immersive writing videos, and yeah, she didn't have her sister in those. I haven't actually watched them. JH has told me about them, but it does sound really mm-hmm. cool because one thing I run into is like I have this like playlist I've built on YouTube, and I have my favorite like instrumentals, and and I'll particularly like I don't normally listen to music when I write, but sometimes I do, and if I'm writing like a epic battle scene or whatever, like I have a certain playlist I've made or whatever, so it's like. The Last of the Mohicans, but with violin. The Last of the Mohicans, but on electric guitar. And then, mm. I don't know, like, you know, four different variations of the Last of the Mohicans theme song and, like, the Mass Effect theme <laughs> songs and the Doctor Who theme mm. song. But there's nothing worse than when you're in the zone and the Last of the Mohicans is playing and you're like, oh, this is epic and I'm writing this beautiful thing. And then all of a sudden it's like, you know, jumps to a YouTube ad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just claws that- you out of flow state <laughs> <laughs> that was something i had noticed with hers i think she had something to where like the ads don't like come through during the, oh, the video great. itself you might get some at the beginning but like while the video is playing and you're writing i i haven't had any ads pop up very cool i write to youtube also phil mm-hmm but I I wouldn't actually spend the nine ninety nine a month a month to get the uh, the premium, and so I don't. Well, get the aren't ads. you fancy? You elitist? Mm-hmm. You Alita? <laughs> you Alita Stark? <laughs> <laughs> if I'm writing like a fantasy piece, I actually like to do uh, you know monks chanting or something. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. there's there's some good ones out there that are like aimed for fantasy, and I've got a few of those saved yeah. that are pretty good too. But yeah. I just basically, if you can give me eighty different versions of the Last of the Mohicans theme song, I'm set. <laughs> just throw in Doctor yep. Who's theme song every once in a while, and I'm good. <laughs> uh, that is a great piece of music too. Which one? Both of them. Last of the Mohicans. Uh, yep. Yeah. You're talking about the one with over the last scene yeah. where they're running up the side of the mountain, right? Yeah. That song has a name. I don't know what it is because YouTube just last of the Mohicans theme song gets it for me. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> used to be there was a band who played the Ren Fair, and they did this really cool song, "Step It Out, Mary." It's like an Irish song. Okay. And so the lady would be singing it and like dancing and singing the song on stage. And when she'd get to the end of the song, they would cut into the last of the Mohicans theme song, like with the bagpipes and stuff. Oh, so good! Absolute murder. <laughs> all right um jc do you have a writing tool you want to tell us about i do a lot of my writing with pen and paper first draft is always pen and paper and i have this nice little black and silver pentel bl407 <laughs> and um i was having how long ago was this like nine years ago i had cancer and this uh, writer friend of mine came over to my house and brought me this pen as a gift, and I've been using it ever since. Oh, that friend happens to be Phil. That was me. That was you. I did that, guys. <laughs> but no, I write. I write with uh, with pen and paper because when I write, I write slower, and it may have something to do with that uh, being run over by the eighteen wheeler thirty years ago. But because I write so slow, it lets me. Think about each new word, each new sentence, each paragraph, how it's going to be related. So it's it's almost like I'm editing as it's coming out of my brain through my fingers. Sure. I like that. And so when I type it up, it's ready for uh, someone to look it over and tell me where I went wrong. That's very cool. I wish I wrote that clean. I can't let anybody look at the first, especially if I write by hand, because... It's almost the opposite. I'm very, very intentionally sloppy when I write by hand. I call it scene scratching usually because I'm not actually really writing so much as just getting, I'm in that flow state. I'm just trying to get down what I see happening and give myself just enough that I can then go back and put, you know, something intelligible around it. You know? I've seen his work notebooks. (laughs) (laughs) Scratching is the appropriate term. I was with our critique group, and we were doing sprints, and I wrote a first draft, and my sprint productivity is always a lot less than everybody else's, and so we did it for 30 minutes, and then we read, and someone looked at me, I was reading it, and it ended up being a a story that's not fully edited yet, but it's called Days of War, and they looked at me, and they're like going, I freaking hate you, (laughs) and I think that was one of the best compliments I've ever had as a writer. (laughs) Because I was able to write something that everybody liked at this first go, you know, and I was just writing slowly, methodically, and wrote this story. And the first 30 minutes of writing, which ended up being less than a page, but he he just looked up and he's like, freaking hate you. (laughs) That's funny. So I was like, thank you. All right, let's end our tools segment on that note. (laughs) I am not neurotic, Christopher. 
How dare you? <laughs> Agree to disagree. So we're going to try this again. JC, he's like Han Solo. He's always first to shoot. He started talking his part of the segment before we even started recording. So for this week's <laughs> Creatives on Fire, JC, yes. tell us about, you know, a lot of the show is focused on pursuing our dream in this last segment, Creatives on Fire, is specifically about, you know, we talk about the business of writing and how to make money as an author, the paths you can pursue, how to sell at conventions, those sorts of things. But we also talk about financial independence and saving money, investing and reducing expenses and, and trying to find a way to pursue our dream via a second path. And I think you've started down that road a little bit if you want to talk about it and your experience. Okay. My wife and I just recently sold our house that we lived in for over 19 years and got out of debt, paid off everything. We bought her, we call them forever cars. She bought a Subaru um, Crosstrek and I bought a Nissan Frontier. And the rest of the money we have invested and in what I make in my day job goes into investments. And we actually, I am now living in the basement of my mother-in-law. It's actually a second living area, but it's, uh, and so it's actually in another little house underneath hers. I have a back deck that overlooks the golf course. Yep. It's very nice. And uh, just, you know, really reduced our expenses because I want to be able to retire from working for other people in about three and a half, four years and have a, enough of a, uh, a nest egg built up that I will be able to do that. And if I have to go to work, it would just be, you know, doing something like, you know, driving trams at Silver Dollar City. <laughs> that would be fun. <laughs> Doesn't sound like a bad gig. Might get lots of material for stories. Seems like it would be hot. <laughs> no, that's really cool. And as you... I'm sorry? That <laughs> seems like it would be hot. <laughs> <That's> the... <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but they have those fans right there that blow. Yeah. So... Maybe. JH can't deal with any heat at all. She's worse than you, JC. <laughs> oh, really? I don't like heat at all either, but I mean, if I had the fan there, I might be okay. JC's that one really annoying person when you're like, you're in three feet of snow and you've been stuck in the house for six days and you're like, yeah, I wish I could just go to the grocery store. JC's the person like on his Facebook that's like, oh yeah, baby, yeah, I never want to leave the house too. again. This is amazing. <laughs> yes. And I'm out there shoveling the snow in shorts and a t-shirt. That's <laughs> true. I have seen pictures of you doing this. Yes. <laughs> I guess where we're going in October. Where are you going in October, JC? Iceland. I know. But the audience didn't, and now they do. Maybe some of them will follow you there. <laughs> but, nah. I don't think we have a stalker audience. <laughs> we don't yet. You might never know. Well, if you, if you do, I'm flying Alaska Airlines. <laughs> And I would love to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's really cool because, you know, and we've talked about this before, obviously off the podcast, but we're very much pursuing the same sort of thing. Yep. Very similar setup, living on as little as we can and just stowing away as much as we can so that at some point we can just say, yeah, this is it. We're going to just pursue writing full time and do what we want to do. And yeah, that's really cool. On that same note, I wanted to give an update this week. Uh, a few weeks back, I mentioned a friend who had a credit card situation. And this friend came up with a really clever way to solve their credit card problem. 
it was a little bit unconventional and goes a little bit against the grain of contemporary wisdom and, and the advice you would typically get. But uh, I thought it was really cool, so I would I would share that. So just to remind everyone, so basically what had happened is this friend had started talking to, they dropped a little bomb on me that they had $8,000 in credit card debt. And I was like, oh no, we've got to fix that, right? So they started looking at ways that they could potentially solve that problem. And they reached out to me. And the initial thing that they said was, what would you think about me using some of my uh, 401k basically to pay off the credit card debt? And typically, you know, the typical wisdom is to stay away from touching any of your retirement stuff. And I would generally pretty much agree with that. So I'm, initially I was just like, eh, I, don't, I don't love this idea. But they said, well, what about if it's a Roth? And I went, oh, well, maybe that's a little different because typically with a Roth, whatever you've put in, you can take back out because you've already paid taxes on it. There's no penalty as long as it's just what has been put in. Now, it turns out that their 401k is not a normal 401k. And it's pretty stupid. So in order to get $8,000 liquidated, they actually had to draw down 9000 and lose 1000 in penalty. So again, when I found out this part, I was like, that's not worth it to me. Like, I can't see that being worth it. As much as I hate debt, and as much as I hate having that over my head, I don't know if it's worth I don't know if it's worth doing that, you know, and then he dropped another bomb on me and the other uh, bomb he dropped on me goes, well, this $8,000 in credit card debt I have, I got it on one of those 18 month or 24 month, no interest. So this is all recent $8,000 that he hadn't paid any interest on. And it's the end of July and the interest comes due in September. September. So what that means, according to Forbes, the average interest rate on a credit card is 24.52%. I don't know what his is specifically, but we'll just use the 24.52% and assume that that's what it was. So in September, his $8,000 of debt was going to become $12,500 worth of debt. So if he went ahead and gave up the thousand and drew down his eight, so he's drawing down nine thousand total, then that would save him thirty five hundred dollars. So that starts to make sense. But then just for giggles, and I don't know if he will listen to this or not. I hope he does, because I did some quick math just to see, because if he didn't pay it all off right now and he had to do it over an amount of time. If it took him four years, he would have had to pay $411 per month. He would have ended up paying $7,233 worth of interest for a grand total of $19,733. So again, he gave up nine grand out of his retirement so that he didn't end up paying nearly $20,000. That made it very worth it to me. Just continuing that math, if he would have done that on a three-year time horizon, it would have been $493 per month, $5,277 he would have paid an interest for $17,777 total, 
on a two-year time horizon, he would have had to been paying 664 per month. He would have paid 3,439 in interest for a grand total of $15,939. And if he had been able to do it in a year, he would have been having to pay uh, 1,185 per month for 1,721 in interest for $14,221 total. So by giving up that $1,000 to draw down the eight, and again, that's a stupid thing because he has a stupid retirement account. If I were to go to my Roth, I would get charged no penalty because that's how that's supposed to work. So if if it had been me, I'd have just been able to pull eight out of what I'd paid and directly go take care of it. In his case, it was a little different. But again, this is typically something everyone would tell you to avoid. And generally, you do want to avoid touching your retirement account if you can help it at all. But I just thought this was a really, a really good story for him. And he is very, very excited. He sent me some very explicit messages when his debt was officially paid off, which I will not share on the podcast. <laughs> I don't want that, that check mark. But I guess a very colorful messages, and he's very happy with himself. So. <laughs> he ended up paying 12.5% interest instead of 24. And it was just a one-time um, he ended up paying zero interest. No, I mean the the one thousand mm-hmm. over the eight thousand is just twelve point five percent of it. So, yeah, if you look at that yeah. way, yeah, right. Versus what he would have, right. you know, yeah, for sure. And to me, this made a lot of sense. I would have done this is exactly what I would have done as well. You know, honestly, I would rather be back to broke than having the debt hanging over my head anyway. Personally, that's just me though. Anybody have any other comments on that? Well, that's what we did also when we after we sold the house. We Paid off our credit cards. Man, those credit cards are, they are dangerous. They can yep. be useful when used responsibly, but yeah, it can get really dangerous really quickly if you're not. No, we kept them open and paid for our trip with them and then paid trip off. So we actually got points. Nice. And my card is a Marriott card. So some of the places we're staying in Iceland and the UK are for free. Very nice. Well, not really free, but you know, we use points for it. Yeah, we do the same thing, right? So I have a Chase Sapphire, and that has paid for most of our hotel rooms going to the Ren Fair this year. It's paid for our flights to Colorado next year, paid for flights to Colorado a couple years ago. Uh, it's really, really good. And I'm glad you brought that up, JH, because I actually, that's the next thing I wanted to talk about. Because we made some moves this week that tie into some of the themes we've talked about, especially in the earlier episodes about value-based spending and some of what we talked about with credit cards, rewards, and things. So, Jage and I just had our seven-year anniversary. And, Congratulations. Uh, thank, you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. She'd been having trouble with her MacBook. It's kind of old. It was about time to replace it. It was a 2012 model. So, yeah. And I bought it used. Yeah, and it's like her power supply just went out. She's having to get a new power supply, and it's just been a whole thing for her. And for me, if you listen to last week's episode, it sounded like I was in a tin can. And the reason it sounded like I was in a tin can is because my primary laptop just decided, yeah, I'm not going to recognize your microphone anymore. It doesn't matter what you do to update the drivers. It doesn't matter what you... Ch- like I spent hours trying to figure out why my microphone wouldn't work, and it didn't. I had to switch to a backup laptop, and even after I got the settings adjusted, I still sounded like I was in a tin can the whole time. So I was like, okay, my laptop was old, having a lot of problems. It was to the point like my primary laptop, if I unplug it, it has some kind of an issue where 
in some amount of time, it's going to blue screen every time I unplug it, which doesn't matter anyway, because the mouse pad on it quit working a while back, right? So anyways, it was time for us to get new machines. So when we started looking at it, I found that Best Buy had a deal where if you signed up for one of their credit cards, that day you got 10% back on any purchases in the store. I was like, that's not terrible, but I don't know. I don't shop at Best Buy that much, so I didn't know if it was really worth it. But their credit card actually really impressed me because it gives you 5% back at Best Buy. Okay, cool. So does the Amazon card at Amazon. So does the Walmart card at Walmart. You know, that's okay, cool. But what also intrigued me about it was it gives 3% back at gas stations. That's pretty good. 2% at restaurants and 2% at grocery stores, which is actually pretty competitive compared to like my high-speed Chase Sapphire card. So I thought that was kind of cool. And they had the MacBook that JH wanted, and she had never had a brand-new MacBook. So on our anniversary night, we went there. I applied for their credit card, and we got her a brand-new MacBook. And I'll get 10% back on the cost of that. And as soon as I get my account information, I will go ahead and pay off that MacBook, right? And then for myself, I turned around, and I ended up getting myself a new laptop as well. Now, that was a pretty hefty chunk of change, obviously, to get us both new machines. But it goes back to sort of what I talked about with the value-based spending. And as Chris has been good about reminding me to talk about the value-based spending, these are two machines that we're both going to use every day. So it is a heavy chunk of change, but it's something we use every day. I need a good machine to do the podcast, sure, but I also need a good, reliable machine to write on. I do the things I like to do. So, yeah, I spent a few grand that I normally wouldn't have loved to just spend, but I was okay with it. I wouldn't feel frazzled about it for a few different reasons. One is I have the money, so I can just pay it off. It's fine. I never carry a balance on my credit cards. This month will be no exception. The Best Buy card will be no exception. It's all going to immediately get paid off. And then I will save those reward points and those benefits and do something else with them down the road. That's fine. We went and had lunch the other day. We were actually, we went to a coffee shop and we were writing. I need to be fed regularly. So I had JH take me to, I was like, let's try a new restaurant. And we ate and our bill came to $39. I was more messed up about that $39 than the amount we spent on the laptops. And it goes back to sort of that value math, right? Because I know these machines we're going to use every day for hours on end. We're going to get our value back out of them. But when we sit down for lunch at what we thought was like a cheaper cafe type thing, and it's like 40 bucks, it's like, oh, well, I mean, we got to spend the time together, but we could have done that at Steak and Shake for 15 bucks, right? So it's just about that headspace and figuring out how to value your purchases, right? Because I think for a lot of people looking at like, oh, a new laptop, gosh, that's a big expense and that's scary. But if you have the money and you save and you're managing these things well, and you're looking at something that's going to bring a ton of value to your life that you're going to use on a daily basis, that shouldn't be, to me, that's not as scary as frivolous spending that 
you know, you go out and eat too many times or whatever, and it's just like, oh, well, all that money's gone, right? Yeah. That just reminded me, I hadn't planned to share this, and I haven't even told Phil this, but um, so one of my coworkers today got into a conversation with another coworker, and somehow cars came up. So he, I think he'd actually, like, wrecked his car recently, so he doesn't currently have one. So someone else had asked him about it, and he was talking about what he was going to get, and he made the comment that for him, once a car gets to around 100,000 miles, he's ready to get rid of it and get something new. So I don't know. To me, that seemed like it came across as like the frivolous spending we were talking about. Because for him, it's more about like JC was saying earlier about, you know, he and his wife have like the forever cars. It's like the complete opposite of that in my mind, where it's just like, and eh, this thing's a little old. I'm getting something else. Hey, we plan to put like 200, 300,000 miles on ours. Yeah. <laughs> that is a standard approach though, right? Like I know, I know lots of people who do that. So set at a, an arbitrary mm -hmm. number, like a hundred thousand, because a lot of people will say after a hundred thousand, you're more likely to have breakdowns yeah. or whatever. But I mean, obviously the more miles you add, the more likely you're going to have right. breakdowns. Others will just, every time they're close to pay off, they'll go trade it in and get a new one. Is that why I keep breaking down more miles? <laughs> I was going to say another comment he made that was also concerning was he likes to drive a lot and will reach that hundred thousand within like six months or so. What? Yes. What? That's not yes. what? That's so much. How much would you a have to lot. drive? So he, I'm mathing this right now. That doesn't even sound real. So like he lives around here by us. So it's, you know, the Anderson, Missouri area, but he'll do like weekend trips to, Tulsa and I don't know where else, but like a lot. <laughs> Drives to like, you know, Neo show every day. That's 16,000 yeah. miles a month. And again, this is just based on what he said, but yes, wow. it struck me That's as a so much. Now, a good car is like Swedish pop music. It's all I feel like that might have been A to B and back again. <laughs> <laughs> That's why the parts <laughs> fall off my car and I'm like, it was bound to happen. <laughs> Yeah, JC, the first time I ever rode with Chris, and I think you're still driving the same car now, aren't you? I am. Yeah, so Chris has had the same car the entire time I've known him, and the first time I ever rode with it, we were cruising down the road in Bentonville, and, like, we're in traffic and stuff, and it's raining, and all of a sudden, like, a part of his car just fell off. <laughs> it just fell off. And I'm like, um, Chris, I think a piece of your car fell off, and he was like, oh, yeah, I was wondering when that was going to happen. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's like, you know, duct tape and bailing wire works great, too. 200 mile an hour tape? <laughs> <laughs> well, in fairness, Chris is driving a, what is it, Honda, yeah. isn't it? Yep, 2008. Yeah, those things don't die. Yep. I did a whole part about Hondas not dying in the newest Blade Mage that you haven't read yet. Yeah. I feel you were talking about the uh, $39 <laughs> at the uh, cafe mm -hmm. kind of uh, freaked you out. You know what Chrissy's nickname for me is, right? Cheap mm. bastard. <laughs> that could have gone a lot of ways. I was worried. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's fair, though. I just think it's important to... Do you know what? I wanted to talk about this as well, and I'm, I nearly forgot about it. So there's a, another podcast that I listen to, which is weird, actually, now, because now since... I've got to be honest, since we started doing this podcast... I listen to our own podcast more than I listen to anything else at this point, just because I get, I don't know. I'm like, 
I have this like childish enthusiasm where it's like, oh, I haven't listened to one of these episodes. I want to hear what uh, David had to say again. And I want to hear what Tracy had to say again. And stuff. so I, I end up listening to our own podcast and I hate the sound of my voice. So the whole time I'm just like, oh, I sound like such an idiot. But I, <laughs> I really like, you know, hearing our guests and, and JH and Chris and stuff. So I, I end up listening to our podcast more than anything now. But there's still a few that I, I really like. There's some like financial independence podcast I enjoy and some like business podcast and different things I poke my head into occasionally. And one of the ones I really like is called My First Million. And it's focused on like entrepreneurs, right? And building businesses and things. And the two co-hosts are both, you know, like multimillionaire guys who've, you know, started companies and sold them for a lot of money. But they did an episode recently that I was listening to. And they were going through one of the hosts, uh, they're going through his investment portfolio. What I heard that I thought was really cool is, so he developed a company and sold it for a lot of money. I don't, don't think it's a disclosed amount or whatever. But he was describing that in his investment portfolio, 79% of the money he got for his company is all invested in VTI, the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund which is the same one I talked about so much when we were doing our, you know, Authors on Fire episode and we went through all the investing stuff. It's the same one I use. And I thought that was kind of cool because here's this guy who's, uh, you know, a multimillionaire who's built a company and sold it for a crap ton of money and he's still doing the same thing. But what was also interesting is the other host, Sean, was kind of going through and they were laughing about some of his investment mistakes and him trying to time the market and, you know, time Bitcoin and things like that. And how he just like always gets it wrong and always ends up losing money because of that or whatever, which I thought was really interesting. But then they also were talking about spending and how the other hosts, Sam, has trouble kind of spending now that he has a lot of money. He actually has a hard time spending because he's still set in his like kind of frugal ways. I don't think I would have that problem if I had a ton of money. But I think, you know, yeah. he was kind of joking you about... Might be surprised. Yeah, might be. <laughs> he was kind of joking about how he's a weirdo and he knows other entrepreneurs, like people who've started their companies from the ground up and sold them and made a lot of money have a hard time spending. I think that... So he was kind of joking about being a weirdo or whatever, but I think that that's probably a good mindset. That's a good way to, to sort of view things, especially while you're in the wealth accumulation stage that... You don't, you know, go overboard and, and you save as much as you can and don't spend frivolously. Even, you know, when you start to have some money, I think it's pretty important. Yeah, I've been saying for years, I was so broke for so long that I just don't know how to spend money. <laughs> that's, that's not a bad thing. I was talking about that with somebody else the other day. I was like, you know, hey, what happens? What would you do if you won the uh, $1.08 billion lottery? And, and I was like going... You know, you, you see these shows about people who win the lottery and they end up just spending it all and, and ended up, you know, broker than they were before they won it. And it's like, to me, that would be hard because if I won something like that, I'd put it into just the safest interest bearing account I could and just live off the interest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's some there's some things like I heard. I don't remember where I heard it, but there's some famous rich person, you know. If you put your money like in a bank, right, you're only insured up to like right. 250000 or whatever. So this dude, he's got like yeah. 60 different banks or something. that He's, he's put yep. a quarter million in each of them, you know. 
Oh, it's funny too, is when, when the guy was talking about using VTI and stuff, he said in his early 20s and up through selling the company, he was always like, okay, I can only live on 3%. You know, like after I make this big lump sum, I can only live on 3%, which I thought was interesting because obviously I've talked about the 4% rule and everything. Uh, but yeah. I know that's what I would do with a windfall is I would look at it and go, I'm just going to live in this framework of live on 4% or less every year mm -hmm. and, you know, get it to carry me till I yep. die, basically. Right. Yeah, you know, it could actually become your, your job, too, you know, looking for your uh, six-month CD for 4.5% earnings, you know. So it's like that could be your job because you space it out so you're buying, like, a, a CD every week or something. And so that when it starts maturing and you have to get another one, that's your day job <laughs> is finding where to put it. And so it's like you actually don't – you're not going <laughs> to – you hear these stories about people who retire and then just die, you know. It's because they don't have – yeah. Purpose or anything, you know, and it's like so they should actually you could be right living well and you have a purpose. Right. You know, one of the saddest things I think I ever experienced was we had a good friend pass away and we went to his funeral, right? And at his funeral people were getting up to talk about him and stuff. And so many of them were his coworkers and his boss. And they just talked about like how he was so dedicated to his job and how he worked hard. And, but that was like the theme over and over. And it was like, that's not, uh, that's not how I want to be remembered. No, you know, I don't want to be remembered because I put all this time in to make somebody else money. Mm -hmm. I would rather be remembered for my art and for my friendships and the th things I've, I've done and experienced in my life outside of making other people money. You know, I don't want to be remembered that way either. As a, a girl from high school, when we had our 20-year high school reunion, I was friends with her on Facebook, and I sent her a message. I said, are you going to the reunion? And she said, no, everybody was mean to me back then. I don't expect it to change any now. And I said, well, I certainly hope that you don't think that of me. And she goes, no, JC, you're the nicest person I've ever met in my life. And I made my kids. I was like, hey, kids, come here and look at this. I said, this is why you're nice. This is why you're <laughs> nice to everybody, because people will remember that. People will always remember how you treated them and how you made them feel. You were not wrong, but I have a feeling there's a, a room full of filk singers who, uh... <laughs> well, they're going to like me because I, I stayed to pick the mess up. You know, we, we made a mess and I, and I stayed and picked it up, right? So, hey. Well, you did. <laughs> they're going to say, hey, he was, he, was, he was rude and obnoxious, but at least he was conscientious about it. All right, JC, tell the people where to find you. Uh, JC-Crumpton.com is my website. And anywhere you order books, you can order my books that I have out there that are active right now. Very nice. Simple enough. I'm also a part of our uh, our Bumbershoots Writer Society.com. We have a webpage that's just, we're just getting up and started. And so come check us out. It has all, all seven of us on there. Very cool. JH, what do you got going on and where do the people find you? Um, they can find me at jhfleming.net. I'm on pretty much all the social media as well. Also on Fiverr as an editor. And my band, Wildwood Minstrels, is on all the music sites. So Spotify, Amazon, iTunes, all of that. And you got another single coming out pretty soon. Yes, a couple weeks now. Yep. Very exciting. Christopher, where do the people find you in your cotton skirt? <laughs> 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 generally 
in Eureka Springs? <laughs> I'm kidding, Chris. You, we all know Christopher doesn't do the social medias or the websites or anything. He doesn't want to talk to you. Awkward silence. He's a ninja turtle. He's got to be out fighting foot soldiers and stuff. He doesn't have time for talking to people. We're lucky we get him for the podcast. I mean, the pizza delivery guy when he shows up at the sewer. (laughs) (laughs) I was just quiet because I'm actually jealous. I wish I didn't have to. I'm like, Chris is always like saying, hey, did you, do you have your phone? And I'm like, oh, crap. You know, I don't want to leave my phone. I don't want people to always be able to reach me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they can reach Chris. They just have to do it through me. Hashtag Chris sounds hot. <laughs> and I am Philip Dreher Duncan. And you can find me at philipdreherduncan.com, Facebook, Twitters, and uh, go buy my books. All right. This has been another episode. JC, thank you so much, my friend. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it very much.